Please be seated. Good evening. Zechariah chapter 1 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come nearly to the end of the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah. We remember that the children of Israel uh, returned to Jerusalem, returned to the land of Israel following their 70-year captivity uh, in Babylon. Uh, there was a, uh, a priest and a governor that had been sent, uh, Joshua the high priest, or Abel the, the governor, sent uh, back to the land in order for the accomplishing of uh, what God had sent them back principally to accomplish back into the land, and that was the rebuilding of the temple after its destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. Some years later, God raises up Zechariah on the scene now to encourage people in the building of that temple, to encourage them in what was God's call and purposes for their life in, in human history, and, and that was to rebuild uh, the temple. Uh, the rebuilding of the temple would involve uh, several years, many years in accomplishing it. They've reached a point here where, uh, as is the case in any construction project, uh, where all of the early excitement of it can kind of wear off. Now it becomes a, a little bit harder and you're in need of some encouragement. And so he gives them encouragement in the form of eight visions that are given to Zechariah. Zechariah is then to interpret those. Each of those eight visions are encouragement to some aspect of uh, Christian service. Whatever time God has called us to serve Him, whatever the capacity uh, might be. And so we can take all eight of these uh, things that He spoke to them and they are as applicable to us today in what God has called us to do individually as Christians in our little time in, in human history. And so last uh, week we looked at the vision uh, of the four horsemen or the uh, the, the vision of, of the horses, and uh, basically God was communicating through that to the children of Israel that the coast is clear. Uh, I've scouted out the land, I've called you to build the temple, and so, and to do it now. And when God calls us to do something, and He calls us to do it now, uh, it doesn't mean that there won't be opposition, but it means that uh, that we will be able to accomplish what He has called us to do. It's the perfect timing, and, and the coast is clear. Now move forward knowing that spiritually what is needed in that spiritual realm that only God sees, uh, all of that is saying the coast is clear. Whatever it may look like on, on the physical level in, in our own uh, in our own lives, and uh, so the time to go. I remember when I, and here I, I again, I'm going to tell a story about myself right here at the beginning, but I remember when uh, God called me to come to uh, Modesto and uh, to begin to pastor the church here, and uh, the church that we were in and, and uh, had come from was experienced a lot of, a lot of difficulties and uh, ultimately would uh, split very, very badly and uh, over some different, uh, different issues. And 
um, and is, I would look at it, I was three and a half, started driving over here three and a half years old in the Lord, way too early to be doing this kind of a thing, and yet if, if we hadn't gotten out, we probably would have been completely engulfed in, in what happened in, in the other church. And so uh, you could look at it and it would look like, uh, what in the world are, am I doing? And yet God made it very, very clear that this was what we supposed to do and with a clarity that to disobey it, we knew we would have been disobeying it. And uh, because he knew the timing that was so important. And so when he tells us to do something immediately, whether it's to become a missionary on the other part of the world or to share the gospel with someone or to say something on behalf of the Lord to another person in that moment that he just wants you to tell them that no matter where you've been, God still loves you and and uh, all these different ways that he can call us to do something immediately uh, that the, the timing is, uh, is right for that. Now we come to the second vision here in uh, chapter 1, verse 18. Zechariah declares, And I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And he speaks about four horns, and presumably they're attached to animals, but uh, we don't know. So uh, picture in your mind uh, a rhinoceros horn wouldn't be native to Israel, so, uh, but a, a ram's horn or uh, maybe the horn of, of a bull. So he sees these four horns, and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And so he answered, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, they represent, uh, probably represent the uh, Gentile nations, very, very strong Gentile nations that had scattered uh, Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. Horns in the Scripture are a picture of power, of strength, of might. So when you see uh, an oxen uh, or you see a steer or a ram and they have a horn, they don't have, a horn, they don't have horns for decoration. Uh, you have a very strong beast that is attached to that horn, and that horn is that single point of the expression and application of the might of the body. And, and so it speaks of, uh, uh, of, of strength. And so here, uh, the, uh, the, the strength with which the Gentile nations had come in and uh, brought uh, their uh, devastation to the children of Israel all the way up to the time of Zechariah. Now, there are some commentators, and they may very, 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 very be, be, well be right. They endeavor to make a case for the fact that the four horns represent uh, Assyria, Egypt, uh, Babylon, and then uh, the Medo-Persians in terms of uh, that uh, immediate kind of chastening that the Lord brought to the children of Israel uh, as a result of their sin. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Uh, so picture um, uh, four angels, uh, each with a chainsaw. And, uh, and so he, he looks at them and he says, what are th and I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. Uh, they they uh, uh, excessively uh, uh, plundered and, and 
uh, chastened and, and judged Judah so that no one could lift up his head, but the craftsmen are coming uh, to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah uh, in order to uh, scatter it. And so the four uh, craftsmen represent how God is going to meet his power. Again, the message to God's people, he's going to meet his power out uh, upon his judgment upon these nations uh, that had excessively used their might in, in their treatment of Israel, of God's people. Of course, for uh, an animal like this to lose its horn was a catastrophic loss. I mean, it would be to, to bring it, I mean, really to humble and make that nation vulnerable. And of course, each nation that rose up against uh, Israel, even the nations that God intended to use as a means of chastening and exceeded their kind of mandate from, uh, from God, each one of them uh, ended up being uh, humbled. And so this speaks about God's sovereignty in, in human history. And uh, I speak of God's sovereignty as the fact that He uh, rules over all and He overrules all for His, His purposes in order to partake, uh, protect the advancement of His purposes in, in, uh, in human history through His people. And so uh, Zechariah is told, look at these four uh, great empires. They look like they would last forever and ever and ever, and, they, and, uh, and uh, uh, they last a very, very relatively short period of time before they're upended. And I mean, it just didn't make any sense for the Assyrians to be an empire for such a short period of time. It didn't make any sense for the Babylonians to, it looked like they would be there for hundreds, maybe thousands of years in terms of how they had consolidated power and consolidated wealth. And yet, all of these nations, all of these powers uh, that came against Israel, at this point, they're gone. Uh, the Medo-Persians are still in place because they're, Israel is a part of the Medo-Persian Empire at this point, but they're all gone. And here's little old Israel, uh, little insignificant old Israel uh, continuing on. And so uh, Israel continued on standing against literally all human odds. Uh, of them survive, surviving all of this, and it was because of God's sovereignty in, in operating to protect them and continue His plan to bring a Messiah into the world, a Savior into the world, Jesus into the world in, in human history through, uh, through the Jewish people. Sometimes you might just ask yourself as you look at the world, you see how, how uh, um, many people, how much evil there is in the world, how many evil people there are in the world. The world is dominated uh, by uh, the, the God of this age, the God of this world, Satan. And yet, and, and evil rises up, and then it ebbs back, and it rises up, and it ebbs back. And it's the whole cycle of of human history, and we tend to look at it and say, well, it's just a pendulum swing, it's just the cycle, it's just something that's written into uh, the way that, that things are. And uh, here we learn that it isn't just a cycle. It is God Almighty Himself intervening in human history, and in order that His plan uh, can advance, He pushes back on the expansion of evil, and that's why evil hasn't overtaken uh, uh, the world completely and, and destroyed 
the godly destroyed what, what is good. And so these empires, they arise for a time. Uh, they come to an end when God determines that they're to come to an end. And he then dispatches his craftsmen, his angels, to kind of cut off the horns of those kingdoms, uh, whatever and whoever that might mean, kind of taking out of circulation that have aligned themselves against God and, and against his people. And so... All of these forces formed against the people of God. They were very, very conscious of uh, uh, were the children of Israel, God's people really in any, any age, were very, very conscious of what we see, uh, of, of all the evil, all that is kind of uh, built up against us in, in, in this, uh, this world, all of the, the destructive uh, forces uh, that oppose us. And uh, so we can become acutely aware of that and then far less aware or completely unaware uh, of what is revealed uh, right now that God is behind the scenes and He is in charge of everything. And so He promised them here, encouraging them in His sovereignty, in His almightiness, I'm in control of human history, and it is effortless for me to bring down the greatest powers in the world today or the greatest powers in, in human uh, uh, history and to terrify them and, and to render it uh, powerless. And so he communicates to us in our Christian service that he is greater than anyone or anything, demonic realm, human realm, anything that would come against us for the fulfilling of His purposes through our lives, again, in our little moment in human history. And that's a great thing to be encouraged of. If He can take and buzzsaw the horns off of Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia and the Medo-Persians, He can take care of our boss at work when He chooses to and however he chooses to, or the problem person in the neighborhood, or the person that slanders us uh, online in an attempt to uh, oppose what it is that we're doing for Christ, whatever uh, it might be. And so, uh, if God is for us, who uh, can be against us? His sovereign work in human, uh, human history. Again, we're very, very aware of what is happening around us. So in the physical realm in our Christian service, we're less aware of, of, uh, uh, of what God is doing uh, sovereignly to make us successful. And He's always working sovereignly behind the scenes to make us successful. And then I raised my eyes, chapter 2, and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. So he's a surveyor of, of some kind. He's, going to, he's a developer. He's going to measure the land for the development of the land, uh, the city of Israel. And so I, I said, uh, where are you going? Now this is an interesting vision. I had a sister uh, a couple weeks ago catch me after a service, and she was worshiping the Lord right in this room. And uh, she received a, a vision from the Lord. And um, so she said, I thought this was just something uh, that was given to people in the Old Testament. Is that something that can happen today? I said, yes, it absolutely can happen today. Just ask the Lord what it means, if, he, when, if and when He wants to show you what it means. It had blessed her a, a, a great deal. 
and, uh, and so I encouraged her in that. So dreams that are of spiritual significance and uh, visions that are of spiritual significance, these are things that, ways that God communicates to, the, to this day. Now, this vision is, is an interesting one because it's interactive. Uh, here, here is Zechariah. He engages. He's seeing the vision, and then he engages uh, in it himself, and he says to the man there, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem and to see what, it's, uh, what is its width and what is its length. And there was an angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming in uh, to uh, meet him. And so uh, here is this, uh, this messenger, this vision that he has, he's, uh, that he sees someone is coming to measure Jerusalem for uh, her uh, future rebuilding. And, and so the angel comes out to meet him, who then said to him, uh, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be a glory in her midst." Now, to be a city described here as being without walls because of the sheer number of people, there were walled cities and unwalled cities in the ancient world. And it was, preferably you would live in a walled city because that was a protective element in a hostile world. But whenever the population could no longer live behind the walls, it was getting bigger than the city itself could contain, then it would spread out into the land around. And so here's the speaking of the prosperity, the future of Jerusalem. Remember, they're starting with the most important building in in. Jerusalem, that is with the temple. Now, I know they went and built all their houses with paneled wood and all of that before they got to the temple, but Jerusalem is really kind of a shambles at this point, and they needed the encouragement that the city would, would, be, would be rebuilt and that it would prosper once again. Be absolutely so full of livestock and people that... that uh, that it wouldn't be able to contain. And God would be their protection, not a wall, uh, in, in, the, in just the sheer size uh, of, of the population. And so, speaking of the future prosperity of Jerusalem, speaking about the peace that they would enjoy, and, uh, and of course, it, it, it occurred in, uh, relatively immediately in their history. The ultimate and far fulfillment of this is going to be uh, during Jesus' thousand-year reign, uh, during the millennium. So again, uh, most of the people that were building this temple and, and this prophecy is given to them over the fact that Jerusalem is going to become so large, it's going to become prosperous once again, it's not going to remain the ruin uh, that it is. I mean, remember, we have um, in the United States of America, uh, because we have been pro- a very, very prosperous nation, uh, that and especially in California is we don't really see a lot of ghost towns. They have they they have occurred where they redirect the railroads or they redirect the highway system and then now there isn't transportation to a city and so a new city builds up over there and then this city kind of dies on Route 66. 
uh, if it weren't for the songs and, and the TV show and all, and people making their way across the United States on that. So, but for the most part, uh, we tend to um, uh, reinvent and reuse our cities. We don't abandon them because of our, our wealth and ability to, to do that. But in the, in the ancient world, there was no guarantee that anything was going to be rebuilt, that it wouldn't just remain a ruin forever. So th- this was a, a tremendous uh, I- encouragement. And as they're building this uh, temple here, uh, God speaks through Zechariah and lets them know that, listen, you're going to rebuild this temple. And most of the people that he's speaking to would probably not live long enough to see this kind of prosperity in the city of of Jerusalem. But he says, you build that temple because it is a part of this bigger thing that I am doing. And this bigger thing that God is doing goes all the way from this time all the way into this room, all the way into this city and into this age. And so he calls us to do, again, the little thing, comparatively speaking, that he calls us uh, to do in human history. But as we mentioned last week, we do it with the consciousness that it is a part of a far larger plan, something that is very, very uh, important. There's reasons for why he calls us to do the different things that he has called us to do. Whether it is in the workplace, the, the, the particular work environment he's planted us into, the city he has us living in, uh, the, the Christian service that he calls us to, whether it's associated with the church or whether it's not associated with the church. And there's something that, that just feels good about this little tiny thing that I seem to be doing and we're all been afflicted by, what difference does this make? I mean, if I continued or I stopped, nothing would, the world wouldn't come to an end, and yet that's not how we're to view Christian service. It's, it's an important part of a larger whole. We don't have to understand the larger whole. He gives them a little bit of a picture of it to, uh, rem- to understand the importance of remaining faithful to what God has called us, uh, called us to, uh, to do. And so, God then takes His message from speaking of the fact that Jerusalem's going to prosper again to now directly communicating to the children of Israel through this vision. Up, up, He speaks to the children of Israel that have remained in Babylon. They had an opportunity to come back into the land, but the Jews had prospered. Uh, as they as they tend to do, they had prospered very very much in Babylon. They had become wealthy. They had become powerful, and so why would I want to go back to Jerusalem that's in a ruin? And what difference can I make related to that? So, a comparatively small number of Jews left Babylon to come back to Jerusalem, and and so he speaks to them now. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, Babylon, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, uh, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me 
after uh, glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you shall know uh, that the Lord of hosts has uh, sent me. And so he encourages them, uh, my plan, my purpose for you is not in Babylon. Uh, my purpose is not for you to settle in uh, to the well-watered uh, uh, plains of, of Sodom uh, like Lot did and to see how much money you can make and prosper. Uh, I have an eternal plan associated with your life. Yes, you may make much less money uh, in, in fulfilling it, but you will know a riches of purpose and meaning for life and and, uh, and closeness of a relationship with God that can never be found in money. So he tells them to flee uh, this, and everybody, just not the 42,000 or so that left, but all of them to return uh, back to uh, the land. He speaks of, uh, of the Jews. He speaks of uh, of uh, the children of Israel. Uh, he says at the end of verse 8, for he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. Literally, the pupil uh, of God's eye. And this is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, verse 10. And so the apple of, of God's eye communicates several things. It communicates that uh, God is, had His eye on them. He was watchful. Uh, for them. When, you, when, we, when we say uh, this person is the apple of this other person's uh, eye, it means they look upon that person favorably and, uh, and, and that they uh, are ever watchful of them. And uh, it, it, when something is the apple of your eye, it speaks of the fact of, of what uh, that person or that thing, the pleasure it brings to the person. Uh, who, whose eye it is, speaking about now in their repentant condition, the pleasure that the children of Israel were bringing to, uh, to God. It also speaks of, um, uh, when it talks about the pupil uh, of, of God's eye, the Hebrew literally uh, reads, uh, he kept them as the little man of his eye. And so, as, you, as you're no doubt aware, when uh, you look into a person's pupil, that dark part of the eye, uh, if you get close enough, who do you see? You see yourself. And, uh, it, it, and so it speaks about the intimacy of God with the children uh, of, of Israel. You have to get very, very close to someone in order to see your, uh, your reflection, uh, the little man in God's eye, and yet uh, God had gotten that close to Israel, and Israel had gotten that close to them uh, at this uh, particular point. So it doesn't matter what the world thinks about the Jews. Uh, 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 God calls them the apple of His eye. He still has a, a, a prophetic uh, purpose and plan for their, their lives. And, uh, and, um, and, and so he describes them here as the apple of, of his eye. And so Babylon, of course, had lost sight of this, that this was the way that God views his people, even when he's chastening them. 
and, uh, and they treated the Jews as if they didn't have a God or as if God uh, didn't uh, care for them. And then he describes in, in verse 10 the uh, future glory of Zion or Jerusalem. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst. Uh, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take uh, possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose uh, Jerusalem. So he's telling all of these, uh, the Jews that remained in Babylon, uh, don't miss Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the plan of God for your life, again because of materialism and because of a, a, a love and a seeking after comfort uh, in, in, uh, in your life. And clearly here in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, uh, the ultimate and, and final fulfillment of this will be during uh, the kingdom uh, age, where there will be the singing, there will be the, the joy related to it. Jesus will be recognized as, as the Messiah. And, uh, and as all of these things uh, happen and as these things occur, uh, then the whole world will, uh, will know that the Lord of hosts has uh, sent, uh, sent you uh, to, uh, sent me, Zechariah says, to you to deliver this message in, in the, the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and then also in, in the kingdom uh, age and so here is the message and then the world is is spoken to uh, all of mankind in verse 13 how they're to respond to this be silent all flesh before the Lord for he is aroused from his holy habitation and so the near fulfillment of of this exhortation uh, is that the entire human race is commanded to stand in awe of God uh, rousing himself now to judge the nations that had judged uh, 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 Israel. The far fulfillment uh, is the entire world should even today be living, I mean as Christians we're living in a, this a, a confident expectation of Jesus' return uh, at any time, but the world should be living in a, a, a reverential expect, expectation uh, concerning Jesus' second coming, that he, he has spoken in His Word, that He is going to come back to the earth, He's going to reign in the world, He's going to reign from Jerusalem uh, at His second coming, and, and to be living in that, that kind of, of an expectation. And so here you have this encouragement of the measuring line. Uh, the Lord encourages them in His favorable presence uh, uh, with them. And God's, God's favorable presence with us, if God be for us, who can be against us, is always the guarantee of success. It's always the guarantee of success. Calling is everything. Uh, natural gifting, natural cleverness, natural talent is nothing in, in terms of, a, 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 in and of itself, in terms of, uh, of, of God's purposes. The most important thing of all is His calling. 
and the fact that He is then for us uh, in that calling, that is the guarantee of success. And of course, all of these things would take place on, uh, on a, a near fulfillment, and then later it will in a, a far and full fulfillment. And then he comes to the next uh, vision, the fourth one, uh, the vision of, of Joshua the high priest. And then he showed me Joshua the high priest. And uh, Joshua was the high priest in Jerusalem at that time. He had returned with the 42,000 Jews back into the land for the purpose of rebuilding the, the temple. Zerubbabel was the governor. He was to take care of the political side. Joshua was to take, uh, take care of the spiritual side. And so he showed me uh, Joshua, uh, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And this angel of the Lord is a reference to Jesus. It's a pre-incarnate uh, appearance uh, of Jesus in the Scriptures. Standing before the angel of the Lord, and then Satan standing uh, at Joshua's right hand in order to oppose him. And then the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from uh, the fire? And so here, God, in this vision, he, God communicates the, the cleansing uh, of the uh, priesthood uh, of the Jews because of their apostasy and how they had defiled. Uh, the, they had not just lost the land, in, in their sin and in their idolatry. They had lost the privilege of representing God in the world. That's the most important thing that they ever lost. So chapter 3 is like the pinnacle. Yes, you can have the land back, and then God says, but no, you can't represent me as, as a, a priest, so to speak, before the world in pointing people uh, to me. And so he not only brings them back into the land, he's going to prosper them in Jerusalem, but he's going to restore the priesthood to them, recommission them in that priesthood, and, and give them the privilege of representing him before the world, uh, even, uh, even as they, it had been once um, given to them, and then, then they uh, forfeited it. And so when uh, Joshua stands here in, in the midst, he stands, you notice, not independent of his office. He stands uh, as the high priest. And so uh, he, it is not only the restoration of Joshua making him the high priest, but it's a restoration of the entire priesthood uh, all, all together. The scene that's described here is, is that of a courtroom. That's what you want to uh, pull up in your mind. Perry Mason or whatever you watched. If, if Perry Masonary, if you watched the Flintstones. Uh, but, but that's the scene. And so you, you have a defendant, and the defendant is Joshua the high priest. So you picture him. There's the defendant. There he is in the courtroom, so to speak. And, and the defendant is Joshua the high priest. And uh, as he's returned now, uh, Wizzerubbabel back to Jerusalem. And, and again, here in his role, uh, not just representing himself, but representing the nation, representing uh, the people. Uh, he, he is, as we're told there in verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel, that is, before uh, the Lord. So he is clothed with filthy garments, 
uh, the filthy garments are uh, representative of Israel and of the fact that she had completely defiled uh, her calling uh, and as a, a, a priesthood before the nation. She had utterly and completely failed to carry out her priestly function before the world. And, the, and the, uh, the, the function of the priest was twofold, to represent uh, God before the people through a godly life, and, and then to represent uh, the people before God through intercession. And they had thrown all of that away, and, and it, it was marked by uh, the dirty, filthy clothing that uh, Joshua wa- was wearing here. They had utterly failed in, in this regard. Uh, then you have a, a judge, the angel of the Lord, and, and uh, spoken of as the Lord in verse 2. Again, this is Messiah, this is Jesus. And the third person you have is you have an accuser. And, uh, and, and this accuser uh, is bringing accusations against Joshua uh, to the judge. And this accuser is Satan. And what is the accusation that Satan uh, brings against uh, us, brings against uh, uh, Joshua uh, to the Lord? Well, he's an accuser of the brethren. And, and that's one of the names of him. Uh, in, in the Scripture. So he lives up to his name as the accuser of the brethren. This is how he uses his access in heaven presently to uh, watch us and see when we fail, when we fall short, uh, when we sully practically our righteous, uh, righteousness and, uh, and, and, so to speak, uh, our garment of our, of our own practical righteousness to then come before God and accuse us of how unworthy we are to be called a Christian or how unworthy we are to be called to serve Him in, in any uh, capacity. And this is, uh, this is what He does. And so his accusation against uh, Israel is of, of being uh, completely and forever ha- being unfit to carry out her priestly uh, function. Now, we've been through the Old Testament together up to this point, and you think about all of the sins that Satan had at his disposal. Uh, to bring up to God concerning the past sin uh, of uh, Judah that he could accuse them of. So they got this long history of spiritual adultery. They've got a long history of physical adultery and sexual immorality, of violence, of hypocrisy, of oppression, of lying, of stealing, of even offering their children as sacrifices to idols for a time. These are the kind of accusations that Satan is able to bring against Israel, against Judah, and specifically against Joshua, that they have forever disqualified themselves from ever being involved in Christian service and representing you before the world. And the reason that I mention a list like that is so that we understand and to bring to our remembrance the fact that this accusation that Satan is making against them is not that they stole candy from a Satan market when they were eight years old. And how many of us didn't steal one of those Brock's candies while our mother wasn't looking and we're shopping in the store? Well, you're all better than me. So, so the point being, 
is we're not talking about little things here that Satan accuses us of and then God defends us in our confession of our sin and our forgiveness, defends His calling, continued call upon our lives. These are massive things that He had uh, to uh, accuse them uh, of. And of course, Satan has no interest in them or anyone being restored to any kind of usefulness for God's uh, purposes. He'd like, his, he'd like us all, all to believe that with him it's one strike, uh, you're out, and, and, that, uh, and you're done, but God is a lot more gracious uh, than that. And of course, that's very, very troubling uh, to the devil. And so Satan, the accuser, he brings these accusations against Joshua and the nation uh, as a whole, uh, him representing them. And then notice in uh, verse 2 that it's Satan that gets rebuked. I like that court. That's a courtroom for sinners. That, that's, a, that's a great courtroom. To, to be in when, when you're guilty of sin. Here is Satan. He has an airtight case against Joshua, against the children of Israel, and yet he loses his case in this courtroom. And the reason that he loses is because in the middle of the proceedings, the judge changes into the defense attorney between verse 1 and verse 2. How good is that? The judge is there, takes, puts aside his robe, then comes out and becomes your defense attorney. Well, it's wonderful when Jesus is the judge and the defense attorney related to the sin in, 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 our, uh, in our lives. And so, yes, they had failed. They had failed in their witness uh, of God before the world. They had supplied the devil with all kinds of, uh, of, of accusations to bring against them, but God was going to give them a second chance. And then he personally defends them from the devil's accusations. Now, it is important to realize that he gives them a second chance uh, not, not like, um, oh, this is nothing and uh, just forget about it. Their sin had been serious. So he had chastened them for how long? Seventy years. He had chastened them. A and they had repented of their sin and turned back to God. And with that, repent that confession of sin and repentance, now he is free to operate uh, in, in this, this way. So the Bible, the Bible teaches that if we, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess there in 1 John means to see my sin as He does. It isn't like, boy, Lord, I'm sorry about um, uh, killing six of my next door neighbors. I had a bad moment. And... Uh, well, I just got to get on with life. And so here, uh, here we go. And there's no sobriety about the sin, no sobriety about um, uh, what it's done to my Christian witness, no sobriety about what it has done to the reputation of God in the world. And, and that is not a true confession of sin. True confession of sin is to look at this and say, God, I, as best as I can, I see this the way that you see it, and I am 
I am so sorry for this. I repent of it. I confess my sin to you. Give me the strength to never do this again. And that's what we're talking about in, uh, in these kind of, a, of, a, of second chances. And so the Lord steps in to defend, Zachar- uh, to, uh, to, uh, defend uh, Joshua, and, uh, and Joshua very wisely uh, allowed uh, the Lord uh, to do that. All the way through all of this and the accusations that are being made, Joshua has a zipped lip. He doesn't try to defend himself at all. Now, when you've got the Lord defending you uh, in, from the accusations of the devil, what am I going to add to that? Ah... I mean, it's going to be like popping out of a cartoon into the middle of that scene. What can I add to that? Uh, I've, I've got the best defense attorney in the universe defending me. The devil has no chance against him, and I'm going to take my own self-defense on myself? That would be a crazy thing, uh, uh, thing to do. And so he leaves it completely uh, with the Lord. And the Lord uh, goes on to declare uh, there in verse 2, he said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The, uh, the, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And the brand plucked from the fire, brand spoke about a, a stick that would be placed in the fire that would be burning on its end. And if nobody pulled it from the fire, it would have been uh, 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 completely consumed. And, and God was saying to the devil that the reason that they are not completely consumed, I could have done that. The reason they were not completely consumed, though they deserve that, is because I'm not through with them yet, and I still have purposes for them. The fact that they're back in the land should have spoken something to you about my grace uh, uh, toward, uh, toward them. And, uh, and so uh, speaks to them of, 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 of God's grace. They have been chastened. They have been put in the fire to the point that they would have been exterminated apart from my involvement. They have paid uh, enough of a price in my eyes for, for their uh, failure here. I'm not going to listen to you come to me now and speak about what you think I ought to throw on top of them a- as well. Isn't it wonderful to realize that uh, God does not receive the devil's counsel, and especially in, in his, his dealings uh, uh, with, uh, with us. Now, while this rebuke is being administered to Satan, Joshua, again, standing there silently, and he's clothed in filthy garments. And, and the, uh, the word filthy there literally means uh, excrement-soiled uh, garments. So you, know, you, you picture him there. Uh, the, just the defiled garments. You can imagine the smell that would, would have been uh, involved as well, symbolizing the sin that was a, a part of their past, what they had uh, done. They had the smell of their sin. Uh, he, he had the smell of the nation's sin on him. He had uh, the, the smell of Babylon 
uh, 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 and, and the world on them. And, and so Satan here, he makes a very, very uh, well-supported uh, accusation against uh, Joshua. What business would a high priest who looks like that, who has that kind of a history, who smells like that, have mi- be ministering uh, to the Lord and for the Lord? In other words, what uh, business would the nation of Israel have after having identified uh, with such moral and spiritual filthiness ever have in representing God uh, as, as your people before the world again. And that's what he's trying to uh, uh, usurp. That's what he's trying to overthrow. But again, remember, God had promised to bring a Messiah into human history, a Savior into human history through their bloodline. If the devil can convince Satan to set aside uh, all of Israel and all of those tribes uh, at this particular point and go to another plan, then the world doesn't have a Savior, and it doesn't have uh, a, a Messiah. And, uh, and so here is this, uh, this the, the, how far-reaching the accusations uh, are. And again, Joshua here, he is completely silent before, uh, before the, the accusations. And, and it's a beautiful thing because when the accusations are being made, he doesn't make a peep. Um, he doesn't uh, claim victimhood status. Uh, he, doesn't claim, he doesn't give any excuses. He doesn't give any rationale for why this happened and this happened and this tumbled into this. And of course, who wouldn't end up sacrificing their children to Molech? So he, he doesn't, there's none of that going on in terms of trying to defend his, his sinful uh, past. And that's important to, to note related to our own lives. So the devil comes and he accuses us uh, of sin. Uh, 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 before uh, to God accuses us uh, of sin and, and, uh, and how we're, now we're disqualified to really be, you know, our witness for Christ has been completely destroyed. Our Christian service is, has been uh, badly harmed as a result uh, of, of all of this. And he, and he brings all of this accusation uh, uh, against us. But again, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, we know that when we confess our sin to God and ask for His forgiveness, He extends that forgiveness to us. So now when the devil comes with the accusation against us to the Lord, we know this scene is being replayed. This is how successful the devil is, uh, is going to be and is being effective in bringing our sin that we've repented of before God uh, in order for God to be done with us. But Satan doesn't just accuse us to the Father. You might have noticed that he accuses us to us. Now, I know none of you have ever sinned, but there's churches in town that are full of sinners. Well, we all know what it is to sin. And we all know what it is to sin, and the moment after that sin, or we come to realize 
wow, I, I said that and I can't even believe what the implications of that would be for the person that I spoke that to. And immediately we feel terrible uh, about it. And then the devil comes along, wants to condemn us related to that sin. How could you call yourself a Christian? How could you ever fill a pulpit? How could you ever, 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 and all of this? So he brings the accusation against us in an attempt to condemn us out of our Christian service. And, and so the thing that we have to do when there's that tendency, yeah, but you know... I didn't know they were going to come over and bring all that stuff. And then I didn't know that we're going to end up in a car and over this, and then this thing and all. None of that. But to just, just, to, to, to just stop and refer any condemnation that the devil brings against us to our defense attorney. And, and, and say something like this to the Lord. Lord, you know that I, have, uh, I, I am guilty of of what I feel condemned about right now. And, and, and I did that. And you know I feel bad about it. And you know I've confessed that to you and I've repented of that. So I take this condemnation, whether it's from my own heart or whether it's from the devil, I take and I commit it to you. You are my defense attorney in, in, in my failures, and then to do that. And you may have to do that um, 60 times an hour, depending on, uh, you know, what kind of sin or what kind of a situation, or, this, or the sensitivity of our conscience. There are some people that they, they, a Christian will commit a sin, and their conscience is so tender, it's so sensitive that another Christian would look at it and go, what in the world are you even worried about there? But their conscience is their conscience. And it will condemn them out of Christian ministry as much as uh, anything, anything else. And so to, to, to leave it with the Lord. Now, I don't want to see a show of hands, but uh, if, if you're anything like me, and I suspect that you are, we all have... Uh, a handful or, or less or whatever it might be. I mean, there, there are those two, three things that uh, the, the devil uh, consistently will bring against us from our past. I mean, things that uh, we're ashamed of in our past and, and makes us especially vulnerable to, to this accusation. And, and that's why when those things come against us and the things that we would still want to beat ourselves up over, how important it is to refer uh, the devil and his accusations to the Lord. So he continues to use us. We are a brand pulled out of the fire. Every one of us should have been destroyed uh, and, and decommissioned as in our Christian service and in our Christian life, but he hasn't done that. He gives us a second chance, and he, he moves forward in his purposes for, uh, for our lives. And so, here is Joshua standing in this place. The, uh, the, the, uh, the accusations ha have been made. Jesus defends him as he defends us. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, angels that were in the presence of, of Jesus here. And Jesus instructs them, Take away the filthy garments from him, his sinful past, the, these, uh, the, uh, his past here. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you. 
I have forgiven you. He speaks to uh, Joshua and the nation that Joshua represented. And I will clothe you with rich robes. That's a, fre- a second start. I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to wash you white as snow. I'm going to give you a clean start. And, and now you move forward. And that clean start is always uh, found in the confession of our sin uh, to Christ and repentance and asking for forgiveness. And then this is interesting in verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So here is uh, uh, Zechariah, another interactive moment in the vision. He's so excited about what he sees. And what child of God doesn't understand this scene? And what an awesome scene that it is. And so he speaks here, and, and he sees that he's clothed now uh, with uh, fresh and anew with rich robes, and he says, let's not stop there. Let's, let's put a clean turban on his head. And he gets listened to, and so they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord uh, stood by. And so uh, the turban or the miter was kind of the crowning headgear of, of the high priest, and and it declared the priest to be holy to uh, the Lord. And so it qualified it, uh, the high priest to intercede for the people. And uh, uh, Zechariah jumps in and makes that request as well. And then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you walk in my ways, and if you will keep my, commandment, uh, my command, then you will also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. So you notice there, it, 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 there's the if. If you will walk in my ways, uh, and then if, uh, another if, if you will keep my commandments then. So it's an if, if, then. It's a conditional promise here. So uh, God doesn't say, listen, I'm just wiping the slate clean, and, uh, uh, and, and so you can play fast and eat, uh, loose with my grace and uh, make this a, a habit in your life and come back to me and, and uh, 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 make a mess of things, and, and I'll always keep you in that position. No, there is the if, if, and then. In other words, Joshua, nation of Israel, I have made you holy. I have given you a fresh start. Now, you play your part in it by being serious about that holiness and serious about what I've entrusted to you now uh, with that, that fresh start. You've been made holy, now stay holy in, in the power that, that I will give you. And here, O oh, uh, Joshua, uh, the high priest, you and your commandments who sit uh, before you, uh, for, they, uh, uh, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Be, uh, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor uh, under his uh, vine and under his uh, fig tree. And so uh, here is this uh, picture of 
uh, of the uh, Joshua the high priest now being commissioned now. He's cleansed. He's restored now. And, and now he is to, uh, to move forward with a sobriety about these things that he and the nation of Israel did not uh, possess before. Now, in verses 8 through 10, um, uh, uh, the, the Lord makes known to Zechariah and made known to Joshua, to the children of Israel, through Zechariah, uh, a messianic application to this uh, fourth vision. And, uh, and he begins to explain the, the vision symbolism. In other words, the, the, beyond this clear application of the promise that he's given to Josh, uh, Joshua here, uh, the ultimate fulfillment of what, what he speaks about here is in Jesus Christ. Who is, and, and of course, Jesus Christ is the ultimate uh, ministerial successor as high priest to, uh, to Joshua. Uh, Zechariah in verse 8, he addresses Joshua and his companions, uh, the, uh, the other priests, uh, and, and their role as priests. And all of this is a symbol of, of a future uh, uh, event and, and a picture of a, a, a great uh, uh, future. And, and uh, here they are. They are types of uh, Jesus who is to come as the Messiah who would fulfill the role, the office uh, uh, of, uh, of the high priest uh, as well. The Lord prophesied there in eight, verse 8, uh, through Zechariah that he would bring forth his Messiah as my servant, the branch. And my servant is a very common reference to uh, the Messiah in the Old Testament. And then it refers to the Messiah just as it does in Isaiah 52 verse 13. Servant speaks to the fact that when the Messiah comes, he, is, uh, he will be marked by perfect obedience to the Father which is exactly what Jesus did. You might remember that Jesus, uh, we're told in John chapter 8, He spoke to them and He said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and I do nothing of Myself, but as My Father taught Me, I speak these things. And He who has sent Me is with Me. The Father has not left Me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. When he refers, this reference to the branch or a shoot, a new shoot that's uh, coming off, uh, that title uh, speaks of the miraculous origin of of the Messiah uh, and and to the the mystery of this person, uh, that he uh, was implanted by God into this world as a tender shoot. And so uh, Jesus was. Isaiah chapter 53, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him, that is Messiah Jesus, shall grow up before God the Father as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. And so uh, in the lineage of the kings of Israel, uh, David was the first and the greatest of, of those kings. Many other kings would follow him, and they would play fast and loose with, uh, with uh, David's uh, lineage. They had no concern for uh, the prophecies of the Messiah being fulfilled 
through David's bloodline. They didn't care in the practice uh, of their sin. And so this branch, this uh, king that would come from David's bloodline would come up uh, out of that kind of spiritually uh, uh, dry ground. When he talks about the stone there in, in verse 9, is that stone is set uh, before Joshua. You notice that it is the stone. It's a single stone. Uh, the, uh, the reference to Messiah as a, a rock or as a stone is common uh, in the Old Testament, common in the New Testament in speaking of Jesus. Uh, Psalm uh, 118, verse 22, speaking of the Messiah, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And so Jesus came into the world as a stone, a stumbling block to many people who did not want to trust in Him, believe in Him as the Messiah, and uh, the stone that is one day going to bring an end to all Gentile government, as we saw uh, in Daniel chapter 2, where that stone that uh, it was uh, cut without hands hits that great image of Nebuchadnezzar right in the feet and representing the world-ruling empires uh, of the Gentile nations. It collapses, and then a great wind blows all of it away. And then this stone, speaking of the Messiah, then uh, uh, comes up and fills the earth, speaking of, uh, of the kingdom age uh, of Jesus after His second coming. Jesus plainly declared Himself to be uh, this uh, stone in Matthew chapter 21. He said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone, that is him, will be broken. It takes brokenness to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, confession of our sin, humility. Uh, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, he, he talks about there in, in verse 9 that this stone has seven eyes. Now, that's an odd stone. And seven is the number of completion um, in the Scriptures. And so it speaks about the wisdom and the omniscience, the all-knowing of, of this Messiah who would, uh, would come into the world. You notice as well in, in uh, verse 9 uh, that related to this stone, uh, the stone has, is engraved. I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. And the text doesn't really indicate what the engraving uh, is, but because engraving involves cutting into a stone, uh, in order to make that stone uh, more beautiful, it may very well speak of, of the scars that Messiah would uh, end up bearing and accomplishing our salvation, which, and far from marring him in the eyes of us, uh, makes him all the more uh, beautiful to us. And so that seems to be the meaning here because Zechariah, at the latter part of verse 9, uh, he speaks of this uh, cutting being a part of removing the iniquity of the land in one day. And the day was when Jesus died upon the cross as, as our sin offering. And he did it in one day once and 
uh, for all. And then the prosperity in verse 10 that's spoken of uh, that Jesus will bring into the world at His second coming. No more wars, no more fighting, no more crime, uh, no more court system, no more jails, no more, no more, no more, no more. Uh, no more. And uh, what peace will mark the world at that time. And so here, chapter 3, that fourth encouragement in our Christian service is the greatness of the forgiveness of God. Uh, and, and a picture of what happens when Satan brings accusations against us of our wrongdoing before the Lord. And if we will leave the Lord to make our defense, um, what the Lord will uh, do in making that defense. There is no one in the world, not in human history, not in church history, and there never will be a single person called to do a single thing for God who will not fail, who will not sin. Try as we might, we will not hit perfection. And we will need to understand this uh, uh, about God's understanding of us and God's grace in our lives, or we will uh, allow the devil to condemn us right out of our Christian service, or um, we will condemn ourselves right out, outside of Christian service. We do not end our Christian service uh, on our own terms because we have failed some kind of uh, self-imposed standard, or we have a stricter idea about uh, or, or some kind of, of uh, the necessity of general perfection in someone who serves the Lord, or we're all disqualified. Uh, we continue on our ministry as long as God continues us in, in that ministry. And every one of us would, in short order, condemn ourselves completely out of Christian service if we did not know that the Lord defends us uh, in, in this way and then to leave that defense to Him. If you sit here this evening and you are not yet a Christian, we're going to be up in front immediately after, after the service. We would love to pray with you to be born again tonight, to experience a spiritual birth and begin a personal relationship with God as you confess your sin to God, repent of your sin, put your trust in Jesus Christ for that forgiveness, and the greatest event you can ever experience in life will occur. The Holy Spirit will come into your life and you'll be born again. We'd love to pray with you for that to happen tonight for you. And any of us here this evening, if you need prayer for anything, we'll be up here to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and uh, we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for all of these encouragements that are found um, and that you communicated uh, through Zechariah to your servants so long ago and how applicable they are to us even today. And we thank you that um, you call us into service and you call us to be something, you call us to do something, and uh, there's always the excitement of, of the beginning and then like any construction project, it just seems, it's just going on and on and on, and we need encouragement in the middle of it. 
And we thank You that You recorded these encouragements, that You spoke them into human history, and we embrace them individually, Lord, and collectively, and embrace them to our heart and into our spirit to have a proper perspective related to Your call upon our lives. Thank You for Your grace, Lord. Thank You for Your firm hand as well. Thank You for Your sovereignty. Uh, thank You, Lord, for Your goodness within our lives. We pray tonight, uh, just before we leave, we, we love You. We pray that You fill us with Your Holy Spirit and fill us with joy, fill us with peace. And Lord, give us a great week in speaking for You this coming week and representing You. Uh, Lord, as a kingdom of priests before uh, the world everywhere that we go this week. We ask that you would glorify yourself uh, through us and draw people to you as a result. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you close us?